we turn to our, for our second reading to the book of Colossians. Now, if you remember, I think I was last here eight months ago, and uh, we started looking at Colossians. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to continue this morning, this evening, and in the will of God next Sabbath day as well. So we read from Colossians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the, in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world and bringeth forth fruit as it does also in you, since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard of it, we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us partakers, uh, made us uh, meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and are on earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him, all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, I say whether they be things on earth or things in heaven, and you, 
that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable, unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. And we give thanks to God for these public readings of his infallible and inerrant word. Now, in the early part of chapter 1 of Colossians, Paul had stated his reasons for being so thankful to God for the Colossian Christians. And he prays for them. He prays that they might have an even greater knowledge of God. Uh, we looked at that last time I was here. He's aware of the difficulties that they faced. Especially they had people that were trying to teach them false teaching, seeking to spread false doctrines about the sufficiency of Christ amongst them. One of the main things that these Gnostics were teaching was that having Christ was fine, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ was fine, but you needed something else. You needed these special rituals, these special rites. You needed these different kinds of passwords and so on. And Paul is trying to tell them that when they have Christ, they need nothing else. Now, verses 15 to 20 form a complete unity of thought. <coughs> they are perhaps the most beautiful expression of the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in all things. Now, some people have tried to say that these verses here from, uh, from 15 to 20 are an early Christian hymn. But there's no reason to suggest that they are. There's no reason to suggest. Some people say this is an early Christian creed. This was something that the people recited to teach them doctrine. But there's no reason to assume that they are anything other than Paul being overwhelmed when he considered the glory of God and all that God had done for his people in salvation. Now, this passage from verse 15 on to the end of the chapter falls quite neatly into three different sections, and they correspond the one to the other. The first part demonstrates how Christ is preeminent over the created universe. The second part speaks of his preeminence in the work of redemption. And the third part 
his preeminence in reconciliation. So then, let's have a look, first of all, at the preeminence of Christ in creation. You see, there were those in the Colossian church who were seeking to teach that the Lord Jesus Christ was not sufficient to meet all their need. They needed these special magical wisdom to supplement what they had received through Christ. Now, I told you before that these people were called Gnostics, comes from the Greek word to know. And so Paul, uh, so Paul demonstrates to them here that the glory of Christ is far superior than anything else in the created universe. He says, first of all, that Christ is outside the created universe as the eternal image of the invisible God. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul says, For in him, that's in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is God revealed in visible form to men. And because he is eternally the image of God, he is said to be the firstborn of every creature. He is outside the created universe. And we know that because he was the one who created the universe. By him, all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent in creation. He is the one who made all things that are. There is nothing superior to him, not the angels, not mysterious beings that the Gnostics were teaching about. He is supreme. He is the first in creation. He is outside of the created universe as the eternal image of the invisible God. No man has seen God at any time, and yet Jesus revealed him. And so he reveals he is the image of the invisible God. Not only so, he is the one through whom the universe came into being. Everything created was created with reference to Jesus Christ. And everything in the created universe must serve his purpose. Not only man, but physical creatures and the very angels of heaven. Everything that has been created has been created by Christ and is for Christ. It's for his honor and glory and praise. So everything in the universe has a purpose and the purpose is to serve Christ. Now it may not seem like that to us. It may not seem that uh, 
that everything is serving the purposes of Christ, but the scripture tells us that it does. Everything was made by him, and everything was made for him. Perhaps one day we shall understand what that's all about. Now we don't. We see things in chaos. We see everything working against Christ rather than for Christ. And yet the scriptures tell us that everything was made by him and everything was made for him. How does this wicked world serve the purposes of Christ? I don't know. I don't know how the evil policies that politicians implement destroying was being built up in a nation that once upon, once upon a time served God. I don't know. I don't know how these things serve the purposes of Christ. But because the Bible says that they do, then I accept that. And I accept that everything in the created universe has been created not only by Christ, but for Christ. And you see, that means that he is the one who gives meaning to the universe. There is a unity and a purpose in the seeming chaos of nature and history because all things are held together in him. All things are held together in Christ. He is the only one who gives meaning to the universe. If you think about it, how can there be any meaning in some of the tragedies that happen? Some of the natural disasters that take place. How can there be any meaning in them? How can we see any meaning in them? The only way we can do that is as we see them being held together in him, fulfilling his purpose, unseen by us. We don't know how they serve the purposes of Christ, but we know that they do. And that gives us confidence in a world that seems to be so chaotic and so out of order. But Paul goes on to speak not only about the preeminence of Christ in creation, he speaks about the preeminence of Christ in redemption. He goes on to show that he is not only preeminent over creation and over providence, but more importantly for the believer, over the work of redemption. We see, first of all, he is the king and head of his church. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 22. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. He is described in Colossians 1 and verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have 
the preeminence. He is king and head of his church. There are many men who claim to be heads of branches of the church. The Pope claims to be the head of the Roman Catholic Church. There are church leaders in other denominations who claim to be head of the church. In a few short months, we shall see a man claiming to be head of the church in England with the coronation of King Charles III. In his coronation oath, he claims to be head of the church of England. But the scripture tells us that Christ is the head of his church. He rules as king of his church. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 23, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is also the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. It is from Christ, the head, that the body, the church, receives its life. Now think about that. If there are a group of people like this that meet together and sing and say prayers and yet have no life from Christ, it is not the church. They may call it whatever they like, but if it does not receive life from Christ. In other words, if there are people who meet together and they are not born again of the Spirit of God, if they have no life from Christ, then whatever the gathering might be called, it is not the church of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ is the head of the church. The church itself is his body and it must receive its life from him. Now we can bring that down to a more personal level. If you have no life from Christ then you're not a member of his church. You may be a member of a church, but you're not a member of, the Christ, uh, of Christ's church. If you do not receive your life from Christ, unless you have been born again and received his spirit, unless you have that life blood, as it were, flowing through you, then... You're not a member of the church because the church receives its life from Christ. But not only so, Christ is head of the church. He's head of the church governmentally. That's to say that the church not only receives its life from Christ, but it receives its mode of worship from Christ. It receives its teaching from Christ. It receives everything that it has that makes it the church of Christ 
from the Lord Jesus Christ. That affects everything that we do. It affects our worship. Why do we worship the way we do? Because we're old-fashioned? Because somehow we like the history of the past? No. We worship the way we do because we believe that that is what the Word of God teaches us. That is what Christ demands of us. It's not whether we like the way that we worship. It's not whether we like singing psalms. It's what Christ has ordered us to do. And he is the head of the church. And so he tells us what we are to do. It's as simple as that. I suppose we've all had experience of people who've come to our congregation for a short time and then they say, no, I don't like your form of worship. I can't really, I can't really get on without singing the hymns. The hymns mean so much to me that I must have them in my worship. And that's sad because what it does, what saying that does It puts the individual in place of Christ. Because it's saying, what I want, what I need, is more important than what Christ wants, than what Christ commands us to do. So we have elders, and we have deacons, and we worship the way we do, because this is the command of Christ. He is the head of the church. He is preeminent in redemption. And he is the head of the church. It is from Christ the head that the body receives its life and its hope. What hope do we have that is not found in Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ said to his people, because I live, you shall live also. He is the head of the body. Because I live, you shall live also. What a tremendous hope that gives to those who believe. If he is the church's king and head, it follows quite naturally that the church is to submit to him in every aspect of its life and work. The headship of the Lord Jesus Christ is by divine appointment. All that is necessary for the foundation and the nurturing and the growth of the church has been vested in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that the church as a body And the individual believer as an individual, there is nothing the church or the believer needs that is not found in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Paul wants those who are teaching that Christ alone was not sufficient to realize their error and to exalt Christ alone. There is nothing that the believer needs 
that is not found in Christ. And if he doesn't find everything that he needs in Christ, then there's something missing in his life. Christ is our head and Christ is our all in all. The headship of the Lord Jesus Christ is by divine appointment. The preeminence of Christ in redemption. There is no other way to be redeemed than by trusting Christ. I know you know that. You've heard it time and time again. But isn't there sometimes something in the back of our mind that thinks that somehow we may be accepted by God because we're good people, because we go to church, because we go to a faithful church, because we read the word of God. If you're resting your hope for salvation and for heaven on anything other than Christ, then you are sadly deluded. And one day, your eyes will be open when it's too late. Reconciliation, redemption, comes alone through Christ. It is only in Jesus Christ that there can be reconciliation with God, redemption from God. Before the fall, there was harmony and unity in the created universe. There was nothing to harm or destroy through the work of Christ on the cross, sin has been conquered. Peace has been made and harmony restored. From his exalted position at the right hand of God, the crucified and risen Savior rules the universe for the benefit of his own blood-bought people and for the glory of the sovereign God. Have you ever thought about that? That Christ rules in heaven for your sake. He rules in heaven for your benefit, for the good of his church, that his church might prosper and grow. We may be small, we may be despised. We may be considered to be crazy. We may not have the approval of the high ones in this world. But Christ is ruling the whole universe for the benefit of his people and for the good of his people. The preeminence of Christ in redemption. And then the preeminence of Christ in reconciliation. There's a slight difference here. The reconciliation of which Paul was speaking was not just an abstract theory. It had become a reality in the lives of those in Colossae who had been born again by the Spirit of God. And Paul wants them to realize what a wonderful and glorious thing had happened to them. 
And he wants us to know the same thing. He reminds them of what they were. There are three things that characterize the way that the life of these Colossians were before. And indeed, for every one of us. They were alienated from God. They were alienated from God. They had no relationship with God and knew nothing of who he really is. And that is the situation of every man or woman born into this world. Alienated from God. Enemies of God. But alienated from God. Even those of you who were brought up in a Christian home, in the depths of your soul, you were alienated from God. You needed to be born again just as much as the vilest sinner out in the street. Alienated from God. We had no love for God. We had no no nearness to God. We were away from him, alienated from him. But not only so, and that's, that's quite clear in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. But not only were they alienated from God, they were hostile to God. They were hostile to God. In the very disposition of their minds and their hearts, they were not just indifferent to God, they hated God. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. They hated God. And when we speak to people about Christ, people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, they might not admit that they hate God, but in the depths of their being, they do. They are not only just Away from him, they hate him. They hate his word, they hate his laws, they hate what he requires them to do. It's one thing speaking to somebody about Christ. But what happens when you say to somebody who's an unbeliever, God is angry with the wicked all the day long. What happens when you say to them, if you continue to go on in your present trajectory, you are bound for hell. What happens when you say to them that God will judge them and unless they repent, they will be forever lost? They don't mind hearing nice stories about Jesus. They don't really mind you're even talking about your own testimony. But when you challenge them with their relationship with God, that's when it begins to bite. You see, these Colossians, just like all of us, we were alienated from God and we were hostile to God in the very depth of our being. Not only so, Paul goes on to say, they did wicked things. 
Even the very best things that unbelievers do are sinful and thus hateful to God. The unbeliever can do nothing that is pleasing to God. It's a hard thought, isn't it? When people do good deeds and when people are kind and generous, and yet not even those things are pleasing to God. All of us did wicked things. Oh, we may have been upright citizens. To people around us, we may have been good and even religious people. But they were not able to see into our hearts. They were not able to see into our minds. They were not able to see the things that we thought about, the things that we desired, but God did. So these Colossian Christians were alienated from God, they were hostile to God, and they did wicked things. So Paul reminds them of what they were. And it's good for us sometimes to remember what we were, to remember the state of our own souls before God. But then he reminds them of what they are now. Through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, they had been brought into a living relationship of love and fellowship with the Holy God. They were no longer strangers. They were members of the family of God. They had been adopted into the family of God. They were no longer haters of God. They were lovers of God. They were no longer alienated from God. They were a part of his intimate family. That's what Christ had done in reconciling them to God. I wonder, have you ever thought of the tremendous privilege that it is to be called a son or a daughter of God. To be adopted into the family of God. It's an astonishing thing that we mortals, sinful mortals, mortals who hated God, who were alienated from God, are now brought into his intimate family, into his family circle. We call him our father. We call the Lord Jesus Christ our elder brother. What a great privilege. He reminds them of what they now are. And of course that has an impact on the way that they live. Before they lived as those who hated God. So they could do whatever they wanted. But now they're members of the family of God. And so they live as those who are in God's family. But he reminds them also of the purpose of their redemption. Why did God save this multitude that no man can number of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation? Why did he do it? Well, Paul tells us here. 
they had been reconciled to God so that they could be presented to the holy and sovereign God without the slightest stain of sin and corruption. That's the purpose of our redemption. The purpose of our redemption is that so we should be presented to God pure and holy without corruption and without stain. And for that, the Lord Jesus Christ had to give his life on Calvary. This is looking forward to the time when the believer will see Christ in glory and will be changed into his glorious image. One day, one day, we shall see him as he is and we shall be like him. Can you imagine that? One day we shall be like Christ. There will be no more sinful thoughts. There will be no more hasty words. There will be no more ungodly actions. But we will be like him in holiness and and purity. That's in the future. But during the time that the believer is here on earth, the child of God is to show that he has been reconciled by living a life that is separate from sin and dedicated to God. Paul says towards the end of the chapter in in Colossians, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. You see, Paul here reminds them that they are, there's a need to persevere in the faith. I also labor, says Paul, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now we know, we know that a true believer can never fall away. But it is perseverance that demonstrates the genuineness of professed faith. How many people have professed faith in Christ? How many people have gone out at meetings and made a a public profession of faith in Christ? But even months and years later, they're nowhere to be seen in the house of God. They're nowhere to be seen amongst God's people. And yet so many of them cling on to that profession that they made, that somehow they believe that that assures them of heaven at the end. Perseverance demonstrates the genuineness of professed faith. We need to persevere in the faith, striving, says the Apostle Paul, striving. Living a life of a Christian is not easy. 
and it's getting more and more difficult. For those young people in the congregation, it's going to become even harder for you to profess your faith publicly in the public square. For me, I'm almost at the end of my life. I have little time left, but I can see the way that things are going. And young people, you will need to strive mightily to honor Christ in the kind of world in which you're going to grow up. You're going to find that the Christian faith will be more and more attacked. The principles by which you seek to live will be more and more mocked. And you will find it more and more difficult to live in society. And that's why Paul tells us here, he says that he labored, striving according to his working. <clears throat> that's the working of Christ, which worketh in me mightily. If the spirit of Christ works in you now, mightily. Pray that that spirit might be even mightier and stronger in you to enable you to stand up and to fight in what will be difficult and possibly dangerous circumstances. See, Paul reminds them that they need to persevere. He reminds them of what they were. He reminds them of what they are now. He reminds them of the purpose of their redemption. And he reminds them to persevere in the faith. The purpose of our redemption is to glorify God. One day we shall see him as he is. One day we shall see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in all his beauty and in all his glory. Surely that is a big enough incentive to enable us to live here and now, to his praise and to his glory. Amen.